Hello, and welcome to tonight's episode of Rise Up, Ignite Your Life. And my name is Krista Fee of Battle to Be, and I am here bringing you an amazing guest tonight, Chaplain Todd Stewart. Hello. Hi. Thank you for having me. It's so great to have you here. I love bringing people on the show who have extensive experience in a whole bunch of different places. It makes the conversation so interesting. So I like to start our conversation in a really fun place. I like to go back to childhood. I like to know what did you want to be when you grow up? <laughs> well, that was easy. Uh, my dad and my grandfather uh, were both uh, law enforcement officers. And uh, from a very early age, uh, that was what I wanted to do. Uh, wanted to be a, a cop like dad and grandpa. But that, uh, that all changed uh, when I saw my first episode of Emergency. Uh, and uh, I saw Gage and DeSoto running and the fire engines and uh, that that changed everything. <laughs> and from that time forward, uh, I knew I wanted to be a firefighter. So multi-generationally, your family has been first responders. How did they react when you shifted gears and, and took a different path than the fire than the police department? Well, that's kind of uh, interesting because um, I I had wanted to be a firefighter for for quite a while, uh, and uh, when I was getting ready to graduate uh, from high school, um, I had I, I had joined the fire department. I was a, a volunteer. I was still living at home, and. Um, I actually decided that um, I was going to go ahead and become a law enforcement officer like dad. And, and it was really more of a uh, thinking that that was what dad wanted me to do, following his footsteps. And so uh, I, told, I told my dad that I was uh, going to uh, enroll in college and get my degree in administration of justice. And he he put the squash on that pretty fast. He knew that I wanted to be a firefighter and he knew why I was changing my mind. And, uh, and he told me in no uncertain terms, you do what you want to do. He said, stewards serve. That's what they do. And if you want to serve as a firefighter, there's absolutely nothing wrong. And I would be just as proud of you doing that as you would uh, becoming a police officer. So, I, uh, I continued uh, on my path to being a firefighter and, and uh, dad was just fine with that. Oh, family support is so important. So important. So you started very young. You yes, I did. Be, yeah. And you have been diagnosed with post-traumatic stress? Yes, I was diagnosed. I was uh, diagnosed with uh, post-traumatic stress disorder in 2020 uh, after dealing with it for, for over 30 years. 
So it's always really interesting having the conversation about traumatic stress and how it creeps up on you and, and the, that whole progression. And since it took 30 years for you to be diagnosed, uh, what was that experience for you? Did you know what was happening early on? Did it, how did that come about? Uh, well, I knew I was suffering uh, for all those years. Um, I knew, I think, uh, later on, uh, I knew what it was, uh, but until, uh, I actually, um, uh, had somebody, uh, get me to a point where I could ask for help, uh, it wasn't until then that I actually had the diagnosis. Um, I, uh. I started feeling the effects of, of the, the trauma that I'd experienced fairly early on uh, in my firefighting career. And uh, the way my career ended, um, uh, that uh, really uh, accelerated the severity of it. Um, and, uh, and, but I spent that whole entire time uh, not having told uh, another human being about it, uh, until, until 2020. So we'll get into your story a little bit in terms of what you experienced and you can talk about it as much or as little as you feel comfortable, but the story that I hear so often. And the reason that I asked you that the way that I did is because so many people go through 20 to 30 years of a career and nobody has told them that occupational traumatic stress is something that's likely to happen to them. And nobody has told them what to expect and what to look for and what the progress might look like if you were suffering from those uh, trauma reactivities. So I always kind of ask that question in a way that we can get to, did you know what was happening to you? And did anyone explain what might happen and how that would progress? And just like you, it's it's usually a no, I had no idea. I knew that things weren't right. I knew that I was struggling. I knew that the job was getting to me, but I didn't know I had the reactivity to trauma. I didn't know that I had post-traumatic stress until way, way later. So, I mean, I think I've had, right now we're at 50 guests and every one of my guests has had some form of occupational traumatic stress and only one knew what was happening before it turned into something really life transformational and damaging in their career. So it's something that we want to look at that there's room, there's space to address this way earlier than what we are. So go ahead and go into uh, what was your job like? Why does that keep happening? <laughs> <laughs> what was your job like for you in the beginning? Well, uh, I absolutely loved being a firefighter. Um, I joined, I was 17 years old, uh, still living at home. Uh, and uh, my station captain lived next door. So when that old Plectron radio went off, I would jump in my bunker gear and run across the front yard of my house and jump in his truck and off we would go to station one to respond. Um, 
I, I, I just couldn't think of my, myself doing anything else with my life other than being a firefighter. Um, but uh, it didn't take long for, uh, for the job to have an effect. Um, I was, uh, I was a volunteer at, at station one federal way fire department for the first, uh, two years, uh, of being a firefighter. And, um, when I'd been on the department, uh, less than two months, uh, we got called out to, uh, a suicide call and, uh, we showed up at the scene and um i again two month rookie i'd just been out of of training uh and i'm walking toward the house and um it turned out that this was a a 15 year old boy who had asphyxiated himself uh in their garage and uh the as i'm walking in the house um his mother comes out and she had discovered him and to this day i can still so clearly see her face uh and that that look of, of pleading for me to save her son uh and and while my my uh post-traumatic stress disorder has always manifested itself in um my dead coming to visit me at night she was in a singular sense the only one that visited me at night that was not somebody i couldn't save uh, she she came to see me a lot in the middle of the night and, and that was two months after I started. And, and when I got back to the station after that call, I was really shaken. And my station lieutenant seemed to be, seemed to have not affected him at all. And uh, so I, uh, you know, I, I walked up to him and, and I, and I said, man, that was effed up. And uh, he looked at me and he said, just suck it up, rookie. Just don't let it get to you. The next call is already on its way. And if you start dwelling on this kind of stuff, uh, you're not going to be ready for the next call. So just get it out of your mind and get ready for the next call. And that was the lesson that I learned uh, about dealing with trauma on the job. Suck it up just you just push it down and get yourself ready for whatever the next call is going to be and uh so uh i when i started to to feel the effects of that um in my mind uh this was something that i just needed to train myself to do uh i i looked around at the other firefighters on the job especially the old timers that had been there a while and 
they seem to handle this just fine. So there's no reason that I shouldn't be able to do the same thing. And uh, so after being in the department a couple of years, uh, I started uh, attending Fire Academy. And I was given a part-time uh, job with the department. And uh, I moved in and lived in uh, another station. It was another all-volunteer station, but I was there with uh, another firefighter. He, he was my station captain. Um, and we were both there as part-time firefighters. And this was the busiest all-volunteer fire station in the state of Washington. Uh, we were running all the time. And I loved it. I, I, I pushed the struggles aside. And I was living, eating, breathing, sleeping, being a firefighter. And we, we were going on calls constantly. Uh, Federal Way Washington is, is uh, about midway between the city of Seattle and, uh, and, and the city of Tacoma. Uh, it was a very built-up area. Uh, that fire station should very well have been staffed by a, by full-time firefighters, but uh, but it wasn't, and uh, and we ran all the time. And uh, you started into the being the, uh, the routine of being a career firefighter and seeing uh, trauma all the time. Uh, during that period of time, there was starting to be more uh, gang violence that was coming up from California uh, into the Seattle area. So you were seeing a lot of people getting shot uh, and a lot of uh, gang violence. Um, we had uh, a lot of uh, trauma that was occurring with, with uh, young kids. We had a lot of uh, problems with uh, drunk driving accidents. Um, one of the one of the kids uh, that um, took up residence in my nightmares for three decades uh, it was a six year old girl, and her family was uh, on Interstate Five, right in Federal Way, and a guy that was drunk. Um, came across the median and hit their car head on. And uh, and when we got there, um, the mother and father were already uh, dead. But she was alive. She was alive in the back seat. And, uh, and so we started... Uh, uh, working to extricate her from the car. Um, but it was just really, really smashed up. We had to cut the roof off. And, um, and by the time we got to her, she was, she was gone. She was dead. And um, that one in particular really, really hammered on me. Um, we were uh, station four, uh we were a gung-ho bunch it was mostly volunteers except for for steve and i um and uh we uh we were just an absolutely gung-ho bunch of guys and 
we had the highest CPR save rate of any station in the district. And we had a standard that we set for ourselves that any patient that we came uh, that was an advanced life support patient, that that patient was going to be alive when we handed them off to the paramedics. Um, back then, we had six paramedic ambulances for the entire county. So you didn't get a paramedic automatically and they weren't responding with you. So, well, that was a standard you could never <laughs> live up to. And um, what I found was this, uh, was that as many people as you save, as many lives as you save, uh, those aren't those aren't the calls you remember. No, the calls the calls that stay with you are the ones that you didn't save, and um, and so uh, I started. All of that started building up, and it was a a lot of it was uh, calls that involved kids, especially when it was a result of abuse. Um, those, you know, those really, really hit hard, uh, or, or something like that accident where it was just somebody that, uh, you know, driving drunk for crying out loud. Um, and again, I'm looking around me and I don't see the other guys having the same kind of struggles that I did. And, uh, and so Obviously, I wasn't going to say anything. I wanted this career so bad. And, um, and and this was a family thing. You know, I mean, from from the time I was little, my grandfather, uh, who was a, a, a cop for for over 30 years, and my dad, they instilled that sense of service uh, in me from a very young age, it was what stewards did. And so I felt like I had this family legacy that I had to uphold. And there was absolutely no way that I was going to fail at this. And seeing everyone around you seemingly so strong and seemingly not affected by this stuff, how did that affect your beliefs about yourself? Well, I started to think that that there was something wrong that I had a weakness somewhere that that was uh, allowing me to uh, to let these things get to me and uh, I had no idea what it was um, but I certainly know that I wasn't going to bring it up with any of the other guys um, there was no way I had already learned how you dealt with this stuff that you just you just suck it up just like that two month in rookie was told you just suck it up and get ready for the next call and at station four the next call was just around the corner you were running all the time right and the really scary thing is there is a need for you guys to be able to do that so as we talk about teaching departments how to handle post-traumatic stress differently we have to recognize that we can't change everything, that we can't soften everything, that we can't make everything about expressing your emotions because you guys do in the work, have to be ready, have to be sharp, have to be focused, have to be 
in that non-emotional place, but we also have to allow space and allow opportunity for those moments of, as everyone always says, for those moments of weakness, when it really is those moments of humanness, when those emotions need to be expressed and we need to be able to talk about it. Do you have any idea how how can we implement that? How can we bring both of those worlds together where we maintain that focus and that intensity and that effectiveness, but still add in the ability to communicate better? Well, I think we I think we know how to do that. I think we know what the tools are. I think we've come such an incredibly long way. Uh, since the time I was in the department in in uh, critical incident stress management, in uh, debriefing strategies, uh, the problem is that um, we're not in, in in so many agencies. We're not training our rookie firefighters and police officers about these things, about what to expect, about and, and, and when those things happen, how to deal with them there, you know, uh, in, in the training that I've been taking, uh, there's so many stories, uh, about, uh, critical incident stress, uh, stress debriefings and the reactions that, that officers and firefighters have in those. And they're just incredibly dismissive of the need for them. Um, they're they're not willing to talk um there's still that the same stigma that was there in 1981 when i joined the department that's still out there and even if it's in a strictly confidential uh setting where it's just it's just officers in the department uh, these guys are still not willing to to open up and talk about their experiences and when you go out on a structure fire, in many ways, it's a failure of fire prevention. And that's how I feel about trauma and dealing with trauma. Right now, we're doing a lot of firefighting. And that's a failure of fire prevention in, in, in the sense of dealing with trauma. Um, if we're talking to our rookies about this, if there is established curriculum within academies to teach brand new officers, brand new firefighters about this, about what to expect, about how to deal with it, about the fact that when you do experience a, a traumatic call, there is going to be a debriefing and this is what is expected. If you can get that in and you can build those brand new officers and firefighters up in that way, you're going to start seeing less of the impact of this long-term buildup of trauma that has taken so many lives. Absolutely. And I know there are, there are already a few different programs out there and we have a modular system uh, of training that that addresses that too, that any organization can have access, can have us come out and train and 
train their people so that they can keep it going over time. And it's super simple, super structured, easy to implement. And really exactly what you said, it's not that we don't have the tools and resources. It's that we have to get through the resistance and the stigma. So the challenge there is, and you even mentioned it earlier when you were talking about your experience that as you were looking at those who served above you, those who were your leaders, and they were telling you, just suck it up. If we could begin with leadership and get leaders to demonstrate, to start being an example of being open about all of this change, do you think that that would make a difference? Yeah, I absolutely do. Um, and I think there there are leaders out there that are that are doing that. Um, but uh, they're too few and too far between right now. Uh, I, I think as we uh, start getting younger leadership in and and officers that are now, line officers and sergeants and lieutenants uh, that are aware of these issues uh, and that have seen the result of some of the programs as they get higher up in leadership positions, I think we're going to see more and more of this uh, being implemented in departments. But there's still such an incredibly long way to go. I, uh, I, I mean, I'm hopeful, but uh, I, I would really like to see it happening a lot, a lot faster than it is. I second that. It's sometimes we get to see results in a small way and we see us one department or one, one organization or even one person, one family that gets change and everything is, is transformed and we get that hope in that window and then see the statistics and realize that really from a big picture perspective, it's just increasing and increasing everywhere. So, you know, none of our numbers are going down. Our military are not committing suicide less. Our firefighters not committing suicide less. Doctors, veterinarians, like literally all across the board, everyone's numbers are still increasing. Some slower than others, but that says that whatever we're doing, we're not doing it fast enough. And whatever we're doing, we're, we don't have it yet because those numbers tell the story that we'll know we got it right when those numbers start to decrease. And it, and it will take time after we get it right, there's gonna be a delayed reaction. So those numbers won't decrease for a while, but we can't just keep watching them go up. No, no, so, we can't. And, go ahead. Uh, and I just say, and, and that's what that's what drives me. That's That's what I feel that that uh, that God has called me to do because um, I came so close to simply being a number uh, that uh, I, I feel like uh, the good Lord stayed my hand that night for a very good reason. And that's what I'm doing right now. Battle to be, we talk a lot about tools and resources, and we shy away from faith-based because there's a lot of organizations that already have that covered. But for you, faith was was a big part of it. Do you want to talk about that journey to 
faith and where you're going with that now. Absolutely. Um, so I've, I've been a, a person of faith since uh, I was about 17 years old. Um, but uh, when I, uh, when I, uh, when my career ended and uh, I was uh, injured uh, in a house fire, um, going up a, a flight of stairs in a house fire and the stairway collapsed. Uh, it was definitely what you would consider a near-death experience. I thought for sure I was, uh, I was going to die. And uh, my, my brothers came out on that stairway and they saved my life, but it ended my career. And uh, I wouldn't find out until many, many years later, just what kind of impact that had on my mental health. Um, it was uh, devastating. I talked earlier about that family legacy and, um, and, and I felt like I had failed. I had failed to live up to, uh, to that legacy. Um, hundreds of lives saved, uh, six years of, of serving my community. Uh, but I felt that I was a failure. And, uh, and so I, I ended up in an extremely, extremely dark place. And, um, I, I came to the conclusion that, that God had forgotten me. And, uh, it wasn't that I didn't believe in God any longer, but I felt like he had turned his back on me. And, um, and I ended up, um, in, uh, in a place that, that I, I honestly can't put into words. Um, uh, the nightmares were, uh, incredibly just, uh, they were so bad. I, I have a real hard time, uh, describing them to people outside the first responder community because I just don't want to inflict that on on people. Um, I, uh, I, I, I was terrified of going to sleep. And uh, that led to uh, me using methamphetamine and, uh, and smoking a lot of marijuana, just trying to uh, avoid sleeping and then when I had no choice um, to be just so out of it that the hope was that those nightmares wouldn't come. And in, uh, in 2003, after I had uh, lost my marriage, uh, I was separated from my children. Um, I, uh, I really had, had decided that, that, that God had really forgotten all about me. And, um, and, uh, it was a night in, uh, in November of, of 2003. Um, I, uh, I spent that night with a gun in my mouth and, uh, I tell people that, um, a Colt 45 has about a four and a half pound, uh, trigger pull. And I honestly, don't know how much of that four and a half pounds I'd taken up, but God, I can only describe it as a vision. 
I, I saw my four beautiful daughters and, um, and I didn't do it. And, uh, so, um, I decided at that minute that I wasn't going to kill myself, um, that my daughters, not that they needed their broken, effed up dad, but that if I killed myself, I, they wouldn't have any financial support. And so I decided to wait until they were grown. And then I would, then I would take care of it. I, I delayed my suicide so that my daughters would, would have income. Now at, at that particular time, I was so messed up. I wasn't working. I was living in a van. Um, and, uh, but that night was the last night that I ever did methamphetamine. Um, and, uh, and within two days I, I, I had, I, I had gone into information technology. I was a computer programmer after I left the, the fire department. And so, uh, within a couple of days, I, I found a job in Missouri, um, and I was still so completely messed up. Uh, I was still having a lot of nightmares. I was still smoking absolutely tons of weed to try and hold that at bay, but I was making a living. I was sending money to my daughters. Um, and so that went on, uh, until, uh, well, I was in Missouri for a couple of years. I ended up in, in uh, Nebraska uh, working for Cabela's. Uh, and um, and I, uh, I worked there and it was still just the same thing, just, just kind of dragging myself along and, uh, and waiting for, for that time when, when I could finally get it all over with. And, um, so in 2000, uh, in tw and 12, um, my wife started to really struggle with alcohol addiction. It was my second wife. I, I met her in Nebraska and that started to really work on me even more. Um, and so that was another added stressor. And, uh, so that went on for, for quite some time, uh, in, 2018, I moved to where I am now in, uh, in Iowa. And, um, and in 2020, uh, after, uh, everything happened with the, uh, in Ferguson and, uh, my, my family, police officers were getting killed. They were getting murdered. And that really started to work on me and the pandemic and, uh, and that suicidal ideation started to creep back in. And, uh, and I realized that my daughters are grown. There's nothing that, there's nothing that's going to keep me from, from doing it this time. And a buddy of mine uh, that I met when I was here, he's a former corrections officer. Um, one day he, he, uh, he said, Todd, what the hell's going on, man? There's, there's something, there's something wrong. Um, and, uh, and that buddy check saved my life.
because he didn't believe the answer I gave him. I'm okay. Everything's fine. He said, bullshit. What's going on? And for the first time in over 30 years, I told another human being about everything that had happened and about what I'd been going through. And, um, and it was then that I realized that well, maybe God hadn't forgotten about me after all. So I contacted, I, I work for an agricultural co-op here in Iowa and I contacted their EAP. Now, you know how much of a crapshoot that is. And you know how much the first responder community really doesn't trust anybody outside of the first responder community. Well, this was another sign that maybe God was working in my life because that random choice therapist, I walked into his office and he said, hi, my name's Peter. Um, I'm i I'm a minister and I'm also a retired West Des Moines police officer. <laughs> and so that started my journey. And he, I, I went to a, uh, went to a psychologist. I got, I was diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder and hypervigilance. And I, uh, and I started seeing uh, another incredible therapist who started me with EMDR. And, um, and after I started that, and I actually started to see some light in my life, I realized that God had definitely not forgotten me, that he was equipping me and that I had a calling and that he had stayed my hand that night because he knew eventually I would be ready to do what I'm doing today. And, and so it was, it was an amazing uh, revelation to know that God had been there all along um, and that he was, uh, he was, he put me through a hell of a boot camp, um, but that he had a purpose for me and the, that the affliction was as much of his plan from what, where I'm at today as was the saving grace that he put upon me in 2020 and saved my life. There's a necessity to understand suffering from the inside. If you're going to actually be able to help people with suffering from the outside. So I think any therapist who hasn't experienced trauma or who hasn't had their own extraordinary life challenges is limited in their ability to, to reach certain people and to connect with people on that, that, hardcore deep level of understanding that is sometimes so necessary because words don't words don't do it you can't just talk through all of it there's a there's a co-regulation there's a sensory aspect of it there's a we're connected and we're going through this together element that that is crucial and you are working now um, as a chaplain so you are actually reaching out and connecting with others and, and bringing your story forward 
so that other people don't struggle the way that you did. You want to talk about that a little bit? Yes. So, uh, so after I uh, had been uh, taking uh, EMDR therapy for uh, about nine months, uh, I was uh, I had connected uh, on LinkedIn uh, with uh, an amazing guy. Uh, his name is Matthew Miller. And he's a chaplain with the New York State Chaplains Task Force. And it was during one of those conversations that he and I were having that uh, he said, you know, you really need to use what you've been through and turn around and, and help our brothers and sisters out. And it was there that I just felt this call from God saying, you listen to this guy. And so I, uh, I went through the training uh, and got my certification as a, a community crisis chaplain, um, which is, uh, it's not specific to first responders. Uh, it's for serving anybody in the community that's in crisis. Uh, so, in, um, uh, so that was only in April uh, that I got my certification. Uh, I turned around and immediately um, started looking for additional training in peer support uh, and first responder related uh, uh, spiritual care. And I found a, an amazing guy who I've been trying to get onto LinkedIn. His name is Barry Young. He's the chaplain of the Independence, Missouri uh, Police Department, and he has an organization called Serving Heroes, and he travels the country apparently all year long and provides affordable uh, training for chaplains and uh, peer support teams. Uh, and so I've taken several of his trainings and uh, I have already been blessed by God to be put in the lives of, of uh, several first responders who are in need of care um, and right now I am, uh, uh, working toward, uh, becoming a chaplain for my local police and fire department here in Waukee. And I'm also, uh, speaking tonight, as soon as I'm off here, I'm speaking, uh, with the chaplain for the first responders bridge, which is Mick Yinger's organization that does weekend long, uh, uh, retreats for first responders and their spouses. Um, I attended uh, last year uh, as an attendee, and I'm hoping that I will attend this year as a chaplain. So um, it, God is is placing me in in the lives of people uh, who need me to be God's instrument in their life. Um, I have to relate an, an, an absolutely incredible story. Um, uh, Aaron Terrell. Uh, he's a, a medically retired Lansing, Michigan police officer. He's also a, uh, a peer advocate for the wounded blue. Uh, and, uh, he suffered a, uh, terrible traumatic brain injury in 2014, uh, in a, in an accident in his patrol car. And he, uh, he suffers with, uh, CTE, uh, uh chronic traumatic encephalopathy, which is the, the disease you hear so often about in, in football players. 
And I've been ministering to him uh, for a while. And uh, several weeks ago, he told me that he had never been baptized. And um, this was a blessing that you can't even imagine to me. Um, and so uh, he asked me, he said, would you baptize me? And uh, I, I had a hard time holding my shit together. <laughs> I really did. It was just what a, a gift that God had given me. <clears throat> Excuse me. And so a couple of weeks ago, I drove from Iowa to uh, his little town of Owasso, Michigan. And uh, in 48 degree weather with a nice breeze blowing, I baptized him in a small lake uh, in the middle of his hometown. And um, that is that uh, since I've been a chaplain, that has been the biggest blessing that I've ever received from God was was to do that for somebody. Um, but, you know, being a chaplain uh, isn't necessarily about uh, uh, Christian ministry. Um, you know, the core uh, ethics of a chaplain is that you're there to say, serve somebody in crisis. And whether or not that police officer or that firefighter or that citizen is a Christian or whether they're a Muslim or a Hindu or they're a non-religious person, that does not matter at all. Um, at the core of the chaplaincy, it's what's known as a ministry of presence. It's being there to emotionally support somebody who's in crisis. And um, I, I, I can't tell you what an incredible blessing God has given me in calling me to this service. Uh, and um, I just, uh, I'm just happy and, and blessed uh, to be doing what I'm doing today. Thank you so much. And what would you, what last words would you give to our audience, to our folks out here? Well, I think in terms of uh, helping our first responder family, um, I think right now, while we're still struggling with, with getting the culture in our agencies changed, um, I think that while we're still in firefighting mode and we're going to be there for a while, uh, we still have more suicides than line of duty deaths every year. And, and so there's still frontline work to be done. And I think the key to that is peer support. If I, if I were to emphasize the most important thing in terms of helping law enforcement, firefighters, dispatchers with trauma, it's peer support. Because again, there's that trust factor. There's that common experience. And while I'm not a clinician, I as a fellow first responder can hopefully get another first responder to open up about what they're dealing with 
and be that first step toward getting them to the kind of help they need. Because for me, that was why I never opened up to another human being about what I was going through for, for over three decades. I didn't trust anybody outside of that circle. <clears throat> Excuse me. And I was no longer in that circle either because I was retired and now I was in another profession. I felt like I, I felt excluded from that. And so I had nobody to turn to. But those that are still active in service, peer support, I think, is absolutely key. It's that key first step to get somebody who's struggling into a place that, A, they know somebody cares. They know somebody has gone through the same thing that they have gone through and have come out the other side, that there actually is an end, a possible end to what they're going through. That is so key. So I feel like first responder peer support has got to be the first thing that we grow because I think it's the easiest thing to do in terms of, of what agencies can do. Changing your entire culture is, that's a big deal. And it can, a lot of times it takes a change in leadership to do it. But building peer support teams, and even if it's not an official part of the organization, and sometimes it almost has to be because those officers and firefighters, they're not going to talk to somebody else within their department because they feel like, man, if that gets back upstairs. So I think peer support either within or adjacent to our agencies is right now the best first thing we can do to get firefighters and, and police officers and dispatchers connected to the help they need. And they need their good first step. And we as providers also need to be thinking about, just like you said, we need to be thinking about that first step. What, what can we implement? What can we get into place quickly and efficiently? And I absolutely agree with you. That is, that is where we need to go. So thank you so much for being here with us today and keep us informed of where your training goes and, and what you get involved in. And I'm going to let you go for the evening. But again, thank you so much for being with us today. Well, thank you so much for having me and letting me tell my story. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for being with us tonight. And if you want to reach out to, to Chaplain Todd, he is on LinkedIn. And I want to say a really quick thank you to our brand new corporate sponsor, AP Laser, for providing us with a 2616 lowrider that's going to allow us to do the plaques that we do for our families of fallen heroes. And that's going to be really impactful for our ferryman project. And I will see you guys all again tomorrow. Don't forget, if you want to support the podcast, you can click the button below that says uh, support the podcast. 
or you can go to battle2b.org, B-A-T-T-L-E, 2B-E.org, and make a donation to our program. It is right on the front page, easy to do. And again, thank you so much for watching, and I'll see you guys again tomorrow.